0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations and Connections. We're the official podcast of the Family Crisis Center of East Texas. I'm Stuart Burson, the Prevention Coordinator for the agency, and with me today is Matt Craven. Matt is one of our counselors here at the agency, and I thought it might be appropriate to get Matt to come onto to the, the podcast uh, just simply because um, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And with Matt being a counselor, we kind of thought uh, that he might be able to shed some light on mental health issues as far as it pertains to the services and and the clients we have at the Family Crisis Center. So, Matt, I thank you for, uh, for doing this.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here. All right.
0: Um, so, um, Matt, uh, you are a counselor. Uh, you're one of our counselors here at, at the Crisis Center. Um, I guess one of my first questions is going to be... Uh, How does trauma or stress uh, associated with domestic violence and sexual assault affects someone's mental health? Or maybe I should ask, you know, we think about the physical toil. Of course, something like that is a stressful situation. Uh, But what are the maybe long-term or just mental health in general? What does someone, a, a survivor, deal with?
1: Well, the short answer is it depends, but, uh, there has been a lot of research. I'm going into the long answer now, uh, just associated with how a person's trauma is associated in a physiological Mm -hmm. sense. It stores itself in the person's actual, um, Organs, or perhaps in certain, they experience it in a what's called a phenomenological response, which is basically a fancy way of saying you feel it in your body somewhere. Um, There's a famous book called *Body Keeps the Score*, and it talks about all about how that trauma gets stored in certain places, and that's something they can feel recurring pain somewhere, especially if it were associated with that person's trauma. Like say, if they were in a domestic violence incident and they were injured badly on their head through a TBI, they may have a they may. Suddenly experience dull pains every once in a while, uh, ongoing, um, kind of associated with that incident. Uh, It's very fascinating. But some general things uh, obviously, you're going to be wrought with anxiety. Um, A lot of feelings that you associate with guilt, blame, and shame. Those are always the three that we are always working with people on a regular basis because uh, they feel guilt for staying in a relationship longer than they should. Um, They often blame themselves they often feel shame because they feel like something they did instigated this incident. And we have to really uh, combat that early on. And the reason that is, is sometimes when a person is having these really strong feelings, they can kind of begin engaging in more risky behaviors, um, things to do in order to kind of cope the pain. Um, Like you often see a lot of what's called comorbidity, which is basically when a person experiences uh, PTSD and, a subs- and has okay. an issue with addiction. Uh, those are two things that are often off commonly associated together. And they might try to dull the pain. Uh, for example, if someone who were to come back from uh, service in the military, and they had a really you know traumatic event happen right. to them, uh, they'll come back and they'll self-medicate before they seek help with a professional or with sure. someone else, someone in their support system, something like that. Um, so it really all uh, depends upon the individual, uh, their support system, um, the resources that are available to them. Um, it can have a great effect on one, one event, it can have a great effect on one person, and it could have minimal effects on another. Really, it's all about environment.
0: Right. And I guess it's kind of important to, to point out that just because someone may not show obvious signs of stress mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't stressed about a situation. Well, well, that's, what happened to her isn't apparently bothering her because she's still going about her business, but that may not necessarily be the case, right?
1: Right, and it might show up in places where it's unexpected. Uh, I remember a situation where there was a person who – uh, was given a compliment, and in any context, that would have been, you know, appreciated. Right, no big deal. But in this situation, because there was something associated with the person, the thing that which they were complimenting on. It. I'm trying to be very vague for, to protect this person's uh, confidentiality. But uh, they, uh, because of what was being complimented, they had a very strong traumatic response, and it led to them having to just leave and change the environments until they can handle that and deal with that uh, strong traumatic response. Right. Okay.
0: Uh, What are some of the things that you talk about when you see a survivor of uh, domestic violence or sexual assault? This person just um, experienced a very traumatic thing. And uh, they're now a client of the family crisis center. They're having their first counseling session, let's say with, with you. What are the first things you're going to kind of address and take a look at?
1: Well, one of the first things I always like to really validate uh, for a person who comes in is just the fact that they showed up at all. Um, There is so much to be said just about starting that process because from the moment a person comes into our office, they have to retell their story, and there's always a strong chance that they might be re-traumatized before they even get to me. Um, So if they get to the point where they've gone through the intake process – Um, Come into the perhaps come into the shelter, decided if they were going to do that or not, and then thought to request a counseling appointment, then keeps that appointment, and then doesn't get scared away from all the paperwork that we have to go through in that initial session. Um, There's a lot to be said about that, just to stick through that uncomfortableness of counseling and therapy, especially if you've never experienced before or have had a bad experience. So I always respect anybody who shows up. And I always say, if you show up for this process, I will show up for you. Yeah. Um, so I really try to validate that a lot. Um, I often ask them a question about, you know, change and talk about, should we talk about change often? And I realized, you know, that you may not be interested in change right now because, Oftentimes when a person has made changes, they've not worked out very well for yep. them, um, especially in a really dr- a traumatic relationship or one that had a lot of either domestic violence or sexual assault. So um, I always ask them, you know, now how do you want to change for you? Because oftentimes they're, the way they were changing in the past, um, it was for someone else. So we talk about how exactly it is you want to change for you and what that might look like. And we create kind of a guideline as to far as far as where we're going with this. And I really like to give them a lot of autonomy as far as what we talk about. Some days we're talking about something specific that they've identified, and other days it's some—it's more open-ended. Uh, it might be something that they have to deal with then and there in that moment, present day mm-hmm. uh, because it's if it's, not, if it's left unattended, it might be re-traumatizing in a sense or start getting them entrenched in the past yeah. when things were not working as well as they may be at that moment in time. Sure. Um, so, I definitely validate showing up. Um, I always often like to tell people really early on that this is something that has happened to you. Um, it's not something that you did or caused, and by no means is it your fault. Um, and I say, you may not believe me when I say that today, but my hope is that one day that is one day you will. Yeah. Um, so there's a, those are the first two things that I really like to discuss and talk about with them.
0: You know, at the, at the very beginning of, uh, what you were just telling telling me you said you know it's such a big deal to show up yes. for for a counseling session how unhealthy is this is the attitude well i'll just i'll just get over it i'll just get over it i'll move on uh how dangerous is that or or how unhealthy maybe i should say is having that attitude of not talking to someone and just telling yourself, well, I'll get
1: over it. Yeah. The first thing that came to my mind while you were saying that is just, uh, it's kind of a privilege. It's just like, oh, just get over it. You know, sometimes people want to say, like, for a problem, we'll just throw money at it and then right. it'll be fixed. Um, and some might, you might make that argument. And if that works for you, then by all means, go for it. Yeah. But unfortunately, the populations we serve, they don't have that privilege to just, say, Oh, I'll just get over it and just go about their daily lives. Cause there's often dealing with a whole lot of exter- other external factors that are associated with their trauma and that may be how their life works. And we have to kind of sit down and evaluate, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you might want to work, your, you might want your life to work differently. And we talk about what that may look like. Um, I emphasize, you know, we have, there's no going around trauma. Uh, There's no going over it. Uh, You have to go directly through it. And that may sometimes mean we have to kind of get into the thick of what the origin of all of this is. Maybe doing a map of where your original trauma occurred. Um, I often tell people that this is not your first incident of trauma that I'm seeing you. This is just the one that is most recent. Um, But what happens when a person experiences trauma upon trauma upon trauma, maybe they said, I'll get over it the first time. And then... They did, and they were able to because they were young and they were resilient. And they're still mm-hmm. getting uh, the le- the way of the land, lay of the land. But what happens is those things, the more uh, unattended to they are, the worse it becomes. And then that last one, usually about the time when I see them, it's just so overwhelming that they just don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. feel completely helpless, and um, I let them know that that's okay. This is a very normal – just try to normalize that. Um, and I really like to – see how we can address these things without the risk of re-traumatizing yeah, them. Because that sure. is always a risk we run uh, when we talk about things. Um, we do, I do a very uh, active job of not trying to create a situation or, or a scenario where that could be traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk more about the feelings. And I always let people know if anything gets too crazy or just get too overwhelmed by something, we can stop. We, yeah. there is no, uh, issue with saying or saying we have to do something. It's at your own mm-hmm. pace. We call it a challenge by choice, uh, scenario. So, okay. um, it can be unhealthy, uh, depending upon the person, um, if it worked, but sometimes that's some, it could be a mantra. It, it just all depends really. But, uh, there is something to be said about getting into that, the origin of those feelings, because often they're associated with the belief that they hold about themselves, that they've had for a long time, and it's kind of pervaded their life. So once we can get into the thick of things, identify that belief, then we can start working on changing what that belief is. Right. Okay,
0: cool. Um, I want to kind of go beyond maybe what we experience uh, serving clients here and just kind of talk about just the population in general when it comes to mental health. Um, I'm a big advocate for therapy, uh maybe even if you're not going through something just so stressful you know i think it's good for anybody just to talk about to, with somebody else what's going on in your lives and, and things like that uh, i guess uh, i guess what i'm leading up to asking is how can you tell if you may need to seek help for mental health issues maybe you haven't gone through an issue of sexual assault or domestic violence or anything like that, but you know, just the stress of our day-to-day lives of, of work or family or, or, or what have you. Um, is there a certain sign, I guess is what I'm trying to ask, that may signal that, hey, I might need to talk to somebody?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't have to wait until something horrible happens to sure. talk to a therapist. Um, it may not be bothering, because sometimes some of our worst situations that we create are all in our head and we they don't bother anybody but us and we may not know how to fix it or may not feel comfortable sharing that with somebody else so that would be um, a great example of when you might want to go talk to a therapist about what that feeling or belief is or maybe how you want to handle a certain situation but there's always two words that i go back to when we're trying to assess somebody um, with not even necessarily diagnosis but just to kind of a litmus test to see if they need or could benefit from therapy. And those are uh, distress and impairment. So with distress, um, is this event or belief or thought or feeling causing me an amount of anxiety that is beyond manageable? Mm -hmm. Um, If it is, then you may benefit from therapy, talking about it with an individual, getting those thoughts out loud, and then confronting them if for not. They are or are not or are not true. Mm-hmm. And the next thing is impairment. Um, if this feeling, thought, or belief or event is affecting my performance in other aspects of my life, is it taking away from my personal relationships, either professional or personal? Um, is it affecting my job performance? Is it causing me to com- be in imminent harm or danger? Uh, if that is the case, then You may also benefit from therapy. It can be a combination of any of those two things of distress or impairment. But those are always the ways we really would encourage, when we might encourage somebody to consider therapy to address that issue. Okay.
0: All right.
1: Um,
0: I want to go back to where our agency, the community our agency serves, which is in a a rural area of, of East Texas. How is therapy embraced here? Is it embraced? Do you think the average person here that lives in rural East Texas uh, would be accepting of therapy if someone suggested that they go see a therapist, or does it still have that stigma that uh, may not be very healthy?
1: I feel it's getting better. Um, I don't want to say it's absolutely abhorrent to go see a therapist. I think it's becoming more common. Um, the example I said last night to a group of people that I spoke to, I said, it's like everybody has a certain style of refrigerator. Everyone has a certain, uh, has a lawn, has an appliance to go do their laundry. And now everyone has a therapist. It's just like something that you have in your back pocket, uh, in the event that you need them. Um, And I think that might have changed that shift in mentality was probably around the pandemic uh, when people were really feeling lonely, depressed, isolated. I think that really created a stronger awareness of mental health and how um, things like a major world catastrophe can affect people and people didn't know how to handle that. And thankfully, there were some services available through telehealth and technology that really were able to help, uh, provide a need, uh, that yeah. people didn't even realize that they had, um, in a rural town, uh, everybody kind of knows where the therapist's office are. Uh, they might see if, let's say you were parked out in front of a building and you were going there and someone who were to see you, they may then know you may, everyone very well may know that that person is indeed going to see a yeah. counselor, right. um, I know I can visualize one office that I know it's very much, it's very visible. It's right on the corner of a a major street here in town and it's kind of a standalone building. So there's no uh, debating, oh, that person's definitely going there. Um, So uh, I think that's something that is always going to be stigmatized as far as mental health, um, seeking help. uh, And that really depends upon uh, cultural aspects and cultural perspectives of how people view therapy and um, could also be where a person is. Um, Unfortunately sometimes a person has experienced so much that they have nothing left to give and uh, we have only but hope and we can only try to encourage them but sometimes a person may very well be so far from therapy because they are such a risk to themselves or to others or engaging in a behavior that they're not wanting or willing to change, yeah. uh, but we have hope that we can try to provide services, make them accessible, uh, try to normalize it as much as we can so that if and when a person uh, who has been reluctant to try therapy in the past um, might be more open to it in the future. No, I always say no one needs counseling, but everyone, including myself, therapists have therapists and those therapists have therapists, um, but everyone can benefit from it in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how can the lay person who's not a therapist, the average, the average Joe, uh, out there, how can they deal with stress in their lives? If maybe they're it's between therapy sessions, and I'm not saying they can do this instead of going to a therapist, Yeah, but just dealing with the day to day stresses of life, what can we do as individuals to kind of cope with that?
1: That's a great question. So I'm a big advocate for self care. Uh, but it's also kind of become a buzzword now that everybody gets it's it gets thrown around in social media and things. Um, so I'm trying to find another term for it. I usually say self-advocacy um, or just being selfish versus being self-centered. Okay. Um, and that's essentially, you know, prioritizing your own needs uh, in a systematic way so that you are the best version of yourself to assist other people. Yeah. I think often we think about things the other way around. But I always go back to this analogy of, um, if you're on a plane and they give you the pre-flight instructions when, when, in, in the event of an emergency, when the oxygen masks are deployed, (laughs) it always say to assist yourself before assisting somebody else. Um, because though we may want to help other people and we may have a lot of hats and roles that we play, um, we're not going to be the best assistance to somebody if we're not in the right headspace to do so. So I always say really advocate for yourself, uh, be active, have engage in interests, hobbies. Get outside, spend quality time with people you love. Um, kind of make sure you, you. There's other things that you can do. Yeah, uh, you know, take make sure you're kind of sound on all fronts. Right. Okay.
0: All right, uh, Matthew Craven, one of our counselors here at the Family Crisis Center. Matt, thanks a lot. Take some time out and in, uh, in talking about this.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: All right. So if you feel like you need our uh, help at the Family Crisis Center, if you feel like you're in need of our services, we do have that 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week hotline. That number is 1-800-828-7233. Also, be sure to subscribe to uh, Conversations and Connections. You can do that via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcast service of your choice. And remember, be the voice, if not for you, for someone else.